0: The Sparks Museum podcast is made possible by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one of many new features of the Sparks Heritage Museum. To learn more, check out our social media channels or our website at www.sparksmuseum.org. Hello and welcome to the Sparks Museum podcast. I'm your host and the media manager for the Sparks Heritage Museum, Jessica Johnson. On September 29, 1982, Dr. Lawrence Davis founded Axtracks, a recording studio located in the industrial district of Sparks. In January 2000, the studio rebranded itself the Emirage Sound Lab. The studio has been host to a wide array of musical talent both local and national, but dedicates 90% of its recording time to supporting local artists. Today on the podcast, I sit down with Tom Gordon, a Northern Nevada local, USC alumnus, and sound engineer and producer with Imaraj, who has been working as head engineer for over two decades. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Tom Gordon. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks
1: for the invite.
0: First of all, I have to start by asking, what, if any, personal connection do you have to the city of Sparks? Is there a favorite location or event in town that you particularly enjoy?
1: Born and raised... In Reno, obviously, I was coming to Sparks growing up, and actually, the fondest memory of Sparks is going to the general store at the Nugget with the family on many a Saturday evening to have the barbecued ribs.
0: Oh, can't yeah, that—that
1: that was a thing. <laughs> that was a big thing, and those are the beef ribs because if you went to uh, Trader Vic's, those were the pork ribs. They're good. Nothing wrong with it. I think it might have been the same barbecue sauce, but General Store had it. I'm telling you, it was that was the jam.
0: Oh. What do you do in your line of work, both in the studio and what you teach at UNR? So
1: I'm a sound producer, engineer, and educator. So uh, I, I make records, and I teach people how to do the same thing.
0: And how long have you been doing this in your career? <laughs>
1: Professionally, for 31 years. I started wow. uh, when I graduated from the University of Southern California in 1991. I'm, I'm a Reno native, though. Born and raised, went to USC to go to school and then there was this amazing studio in Reno called Granny's House that was there um for many years that I had miraculously landed a gig at right out of school and was at Granny's House from 91 to 98 and it, in that period of time it switched names from ownership and names from Granny's to Granny's House from Granny's House to just Granny's and then from Granny's to Sierra Sonics Recording Mansion and we used to joke that was the that was the short name the long name was Sierra Sonics Recording Mansion and Millie Vanilli Memorial Salad Bar <laughs> and uh, I was a head engineer when I was Sierra Sonics for two years and then went freelance in 98 and uh, uh, struck out on my own and I had recorded at the studio in Sparks when I was in high school when I was 15 called Axtrax over on Greg and Linda knowing that was a studio in the area I kind of knocked on doors around town to see who needed engineering help and same owner, Dr. Lawrence Davis, who was our engineer in 1985, remembered me and said, hey, if you think you can um, book the place, we'll put some money into remodeling it. And we spent most of 99 remodeling. And basically, end of 99, beginning of 2000, we reopened under the name Emirage Sound Labs. And I've been head engineer, manager, and head lead producer out of Emirage, um since 2000.
0: Wow. And where does that name come from, Emirage?
1: Uh Ironically... It is uh, a name that Dr. Davison invented for a friend who was inventing a perfume line. Oh. And he said it's the word image and mirage squished together. I'm like, interesting. And at the time, when we still had terrestrial phone books, he was very keen to have a name for the studio that was going to be the letter A. So we're the first ones in the phone book. And uh, that's why Axtrax was called Axtrax first. And then then there was this recording technology called ADATs that came out, A-D-A-T, and there was a studio in town that advertises ADAT 24 track, so they were always above tracks. and Dr. Davis was like, "Mm, we got to come up with something. And and we tried a whole different option, and we went back and forth for months, and then finally Dr. Davis walks in. and says what about emirage we're like it doesn't start with the letter a <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but it's this word i came up with for a friend's perfume that never got launched and kind of like the word i go it is a good word and then almost immediately uh phone books kind of vanish, so the need for the first in the phone book uh um wasn't isn't important
0: wow now tell me a little bit more about uh dr davis
1: dr davis the rock and doc is the longest running commercial studio owner in the state of nevada Wow. He moved here from Minneapolis uh, in 1977, I believe, after getting his degree in chiropractic and uh, started his chiropractic practice, which he now has, has had an office over on uh, Moana forever next to Mogul Mouse Davis Chiropractic. And he actually had another one here on Sparks on the corner of Prater and McCarran for many years too. And he... Wanted to record some of his songs and realized there's no studio here. I, I, I want to record the song. So he put together a partnership and they bought some gear and created a studio in downtown Reno first called Sunwood. That was open from 78 to 80. And it's where the West street market is now in downtown Reno where that Greek restaurant is. And the well, I guess the wine bar still there, but there's a, a few other places I've gone through and for those two years, uh, Dr. Davis had Sunwood there, and in 1980, that is where Lionel Richie and Diana Ross cut the vocals to Endless Love. Oh, wow. Because Diana was on contract with Bill Harris, performing at Harris', and if you were on contract, you couldn't leave town while you were doing your, your engagement. And, then, of course, they had to have the song done immediately, so they flew up Lionel with the tapes, and the only commercial studio available then was, was uh, Sunwood. So... Um, that partnership dissolved in 1980, 81. Dr. Davis took all of his toys out of Sunwood and found this location on the corner of Greg and Linda and Sparks. And there was actually a partner that had a video shop, which there was not many video people going on in 81, 82. So he Split the space in half. The front half was extracts. The back half was a video spot. That video person ended up going somewhere else, and they expanded the whole place to be the studio.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Now, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, that, that area of town is uh, the kind of Sparks' is more industrial yes. sector. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you see a connection between Imraj's mission and uh, the projects that it develops with kind of Sparks' more homegrown, community-based growth and development.
1: Well, Two, two angles to that answer. First off, like I said, it was at the corner of Greg and Linda and I literally have a connection to the homegrown angle of that. <laughs> um, we were recording a group with um, a gal named Milan Luna playing bass and singing and she was like, I had this, one of the songs we're doing is about my mom who passed away and uh, her, uh, when she was young in her fifties and he said, you know, and my, my grandfather was a land developer out here in Sparks and uh. Back to you know they would name streets out here after you know their kids and stuff when they were developing it in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Wow! So my uncle is like he's named one of the streets are named after him. My mom's named after one of them. Mm. And so what's your what's your uncle's name? Greg. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, what's your mom's name? Linda. I'm like, do you realize the studio you're at right now is on the corner of Greg and Linda? And she's like, no. And we walked outside, and you're like, oh my god, <laughs> Linda's my mom, and the song we're recording is about her.
0: That is amazing.
1: And sadly, Milan passed away from cancer before she turned fifty, like three years mm. later, uh, or four years later. So that was horrible. Uh, but I, she brought her uncle over to one of the sessions, and I got to meet Greg, and we took a picture underneath the intersection of Greg and Linda.
0: Oh my god, that's underneath amazing. the street
1: sign. So, yeah. <laughs> Can't get more homespun than that, right?
0: Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: My Wow, that's that's fantastic. Uh, Lazy Universe, that was the name of the band. Hey. That was the final name, Lazy Universe. So yeah, um, really remarkable musicians and, and good record and a lot of energy and spirit. The song she wrote for her mom was heavy Ooh. Mm. And, and, and timely. So um, then in terms of the vision of the spirit of the neighborhood, Dr. Davis has said, since I went over there, um in 1999 which was the tail end of the grunge era right right and at that time we had this very um strong musical movement that was called the seattle sound right with the grunge movement and dr davis is like you know there's got to be a reno sound there's got to be a spark sound there's got to be you know a sound from this region and that's something i had been trying to do with developing artists when i worked at granny's house and had been continuing to do since taking over Extracts becoming Mirage. We've always been trying to find some local act to break, and we've had a couple close calls, but no one's blown up the way that, like, the killers have blown up out of Vegas, you know? Right. Um, the biggest artist that's come from Northern Nevada, arguably, is a classical composer, Eric Whitaker, mm. who is the go to for choir music now, and wow. he wrote the overture for like the last Olympics in England. and and he's a to me model he's just gorgeous and he's talented and he's <laughs> and he's from washa valley you know or or, or no he's from Minden area and wow uh, right i went to music camp with him <laughs> when i was in high school and he's this international phenom now um but none of the none of the uh the, the only band that's gotten close was a punk band called seven seconds they really had an international push in the early 80s and they were touring with all the big names like Dead Kennedys and Sex Pistols and stuff like that. And, but now Kevin Seconds, the guy who started that band, lives in sack. You know, kind of isn't here anymore. And um, the, the biggest other musician, I would say, now is a jazz musician that came from here. A guy named Brian Landris, who's a um, low brass, a low sax player. You know, barry sax, bass clarinet, bass flute lives in New York now and has his own little label and is in downbeat magazine every year in the top 10 list of best players for those instruments. And so there are some staggering talent here. And I used to joke all the time, we have an enormous amount of talent per capita in this market because so many people moved here in the sixties and seventies to be for the steady work of the house bands at the casinos, including the nugget.
0: Exactly. And,
1: uh, so that was way better than life on the road for a lot of people. They could settle down, have families, all that good stuff. So either those players are still in the area or they've had very talented offspring. Wow. So the amount of talent here is ridiculous. And and now UNR's draw with our music faculty brings even more of them here. It's it's pretty great. So for a, a market our size, we're very fortunate with the amount of talent that's come here for music.
0: I was going to ask you about that, actually. It's perfect segue. Um, because it, of the rare opportunity that we find ourselves in being in this region of being an entertainment hub of sorts throughout the different decades. And even though that's kind of ebbed and flowed throughout the years, um, the fact still remains that we have these massive performance centers, um, people coming and touring all the time. As you've seen it, could you tell us a little bit about the the history of music performances and and recording in this area?
1: Well, with touring, we have one distinct advantage amongst many disadvantages uh when you tour as an artist you're always trying to um program your tours with logical next towns to play in and on the east coast it's very easy to tour because everything's so close everything you know the distance to go from reno to san francisco covers baltimore to to new york city on the east coast with all these other great places in between so um Reno is kind of a perfectly centered spot between San Francisco and Salt Lake, we're on a lot of touring circuits. Sure. So if they want to insert a night in between those two big markets, they can if they can get Reno to to, to, to show up. That's a that can be a good a good fill in. So we've had some good luck with some major tours that come along, but that really didn't start till the '80s. There were a lot of big shows that you know I remember in the '70s going, Oh, Kiss! I wish Kiss would play here. <laughs> Are you kidding? My brother and I would be looking at the artwork of Kiss Alive, too, and we were not a big enough market to pull that off. Sure. Um, but now, you know, they just had Kiss here at the Nugget. They and, did. And uh, <laughs> they, 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 the Grand Sierra put them in the showroom there. So, you know, we've, we've definitely grown up as a town of entertainment that has can facilitate the touring uh, issues uh, and the tech requirements because uh, to tour with that equipment is not cheap. And some tours tour with their own, but a lot now will use whatever house sound there is. And for a long time we didn't have the best facilities. and a lot of the local production teams are really up the game. Uh, but you know, with, with that's in terms of like concert, outdoor venue concerts or, or um, hall concerts. Before that when it was showroom stuff when we were getting rat pack style artists, Know, the, the, Sammy Davis juniors and stuff that was the big appeal, especially, um, the, the nugget showroom and Harris headline room was the intimacy of that because Sammy Davis or Rich Little or, or Liberace were used to playing, you know, these bigger venues in lar- larger markets, but they liked the fact that they could see faces in the first five rows at these small rooms and the owners, John Esquagger or Bill Hera, knew back then you had to treat your artists really well. So Bill, especially, would spoil the heck out of the artists that would come here. Sure. And let them stay at the Hera Mansion. Let them pick out a car in the, in the car collection over here in Sparks and drive around. I remember. So my dad worked for Bill Hera for many moons as a light person. Wow. And told me not to do lights. So here <laughs> I am, not doing lights. You're doing sound. I'm doing sound exactly. <laughs> See. I'm solved. And uh, so, you know, I, 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 I grew up in entertainment and visiting dad doing shows um, and, you know, met Sammy Davis Jr. at a midnight screening of a film that he did for the crew at the Granada downtown. Wow. Saw, you know, a, a, an advanced copy of Cannonball Run 2 <laughs> <laughs> with Sammy. And, um, yeah, Bill was like, what do you need? And I want you to... Because I, I, going back to the Diana Ross story... They didn't want them to want to leave Reno while they were here. You know, no, let's, you want to go to the lake for the day? We'll, we have a car. We'll take you up there. You know, if, if you want to, um, eat ice cream, Phyllis Diller used to go downtown to the Woolworths downtown and eat at the bar. Cause when she's not dolled up, no one knew who she was.
0: Wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, and then it was a little getaway for these folks. Sure. And then my dad and I pulled up to Bill Cosby one day, driving the Bugatti Royale from the collection.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> you roll down the window and, Dale. And it's like, oh, hey, Bill. <laughs> and I'm seven going, he knows my dad's name. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, long before we knew what Bill turned into. But the, sure. uh, um, yeah, uh, the 80s, there were a lot of things we didn't know about. So um, that the, the showroom stuff started first in terms of establishing a des- destination place. And even Sinatra got it and bought the Calneva in Lake Tahoe mm-hmm. for three years from 60 to 61. That's right. And and they would yeah, skirt the issue of gaming with that big room. So there's just enough uh, table games to fill half that room.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: So if the, the, the Nevada inspectors were going to show up, they'd push them all to the California side mm-hmm. and the Nevada inspectors going to put the California side. And But the shows that... Those three years, ooh, Frank's brought some folks up here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and Mike Erdley of uh, Tankwood, one of my colleagues in town, was fortunate enough to to get a collection of 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 of, 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 of uh, some of the gear that came from the room there, and including one of Frank's microphones that he has at the studio now. And it's like, wow, that's lots of history there. Uh, and I got some stuff from the Harris showroom. Uh, and we actually we got a one piece out of the the nugget showroom not too long ago at the university. So um, some of that gear is like when it gets old has no value, but some of it's kind of fun and cool it has vibe. So uh, that becomes lore. And you can say when you go when someones using it is, oh, this was used by so-and-so doing so- and so. So we have a, a showroom piano from Harris at our studio. my dad got in the 70s. Ah.
0: Oh. It's amazing. Yeah.
1: And then we ended up running it to El Dorado a couple times too. So you know, Ray Charles has played on it. Jerry Lee Lewis broke eight keys on it.
0: Oh. Uh, so
1: <laughs> you know, that's vibe. And yeah. when you go into Really, I get to play a piano that Jerry Lee Lewis broke. I'm in. <laughs> oh my
0: gosh. No, and, and having been in, in Mirage as yeah. well. In many ways it itself is a museum. Right. And I was going to ask you about that actually. Um, in what ways would you equate a studio to a museum? And can you tell us about I mean that right there coming from heras that that piano is amazing, but can you tell us about maybe one or two mementos or treasures that you you sure. have proudly on display?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> and and you know, when it comes to recording studios as museums, especially a lot of the vintage gear, they not only do they become hollow ground because of Certain people may have used it, but they just have a tone that a lot of people now spe- spend unbelievable money for. Yeah. There are microphones that were used by Sinatra and the Beatles, and it, and it's the same make and model. It's not the actual ones they used that that were maybe a grand or two back then are going for $20,000 a microphone now mm. because the tubes that are in them, you can't make anymore. There's mercury inside them. People would die trying to make these tubes again. Sure. So you can't get that sound anymore. So try and find working ones out there in the world. eBay has just shot all of these through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, so some of the some of the, the 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 key pieces in recording studios that have that kind of appeal are these kind of vintage items that you can't be replaced. Uh, uh, so and we have a couple nice pieces like that. One is a microphone that isn't a huge monetary value, but we got it from Ray Parker Jr. And it was uh, an NKG The Tube, which is the kid brother of one of these Oh My God microphones I had mentioned, the C12. But it was used by Ray Parker Jr. to record the vocals the Ghostbusters with. And sonically, what does that mean? Nothing, vibe, everything. Yeah. <laughs> People fight over who gets to use the Ghostbusters mic. And I'm like, ah, really, it's that important to you? Okay, fine. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then we have a, a two-track reel-to-reel machine that apparently was purchased from uh, Steely Dan. Mm. I wish I knew which albums. Sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anything with Steely Dan, because they are the the, the the final word in production quality. Mm. They, they, they Those guys are the most anal retentive guys ever on, to make records. So the fact that it 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 got under the limbo stick of their quality control that that says something uh, and then we have a two inch 24 track machine which is uh, uh where there's actually 24 individual lanes to record 24 individual instruments that used to belong to david stewart of the arrhythmics the guitar player writer of the arrhythmics so it was our demo machine annie lennox is saying on it that's all i need to know yeah <laughs> <laughs> done <laughs> uh what else do we have we ha- we have um uh one of the channels from the original console that was from Sunwood in the early days of Axtrax, we've taken eight of those channels and made what we call a sidecar, which is a, a, a side little mini console with just eight of the channel strips. And the channel that Lionel cut his vocal friendless love is one of the channels we have there. Sonically, again, nothing, vibe, everything. Uh, but one fun piece is we have a, a collection of these old ribbon microphones from World War II era. And a little after, and you, you've seen them on old newsreels, you know, of, of, and, and a lot of old footage from the 40s of Frank singing into them or uh, uh, Sarah Vaughan or Nat King Cole before those tube microphones really started uh, making their way in the, in, the, uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, in the 40s. A lot of these ribbon microphones were the way they went. and then they often would put the badge of the, of the radio station on top an NBC or a CBS badge on top of right, it yeah. or there was another okay. one that was kind of a pill shaped. the RCA 44s or the 77s and this, um, this the, the pill shaped one, the, the 77 ended up being like the go-to broadcast microphone. so you'd see that microphone on a lot of desks on talk shows. Mm. So in the early years of The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson had one of those. And when Letterman first started, just as as an homage, he had one on his desk. And then Larry King Live had one on his desk all the way until the end. And it wasn't working. It was just a prop because they had better (laughs) gear. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, oh, I recognize that pill-shaped 77. Um, We acquired a a prototype 77 from uh, a friend of ours, that needed work. It was missing the little fork that holds it, which is called a yoke. And when I sent it to a, a tech to work on it, who actually was an original RCA tech who was in his 80s at the time, he's like, "Oh, you got a 77B. This is this is fun. This was a prototype from the early part of last year, where we were in a technological race with the Germans on any on, on every topic oh, in yeah. that part yeah. of the century, and." Uh, they were the first ones to come up with a microphone that picked up what we call cardioid, 270 degrees. And and the microphone we're speaking into right now picks up the front, the sides, but not the back. Right. And ribbon microphones was a thin corrugated ribbon facing uh, forward and backwards with magnets on the side. So it couldn't pick up sides, only the front and the back Mm. by design. And here comes Germany with 270 degrees. And the American engineers are like, oh, no, you don't. We're, we're not going to take this sitting down. Yeah, okay. So they had to come up with a way of picking up and getting a bigger pickup pattern. They came up with a dual ribbon approach to try to get a wider space. Very expensive to manufacture, and they ditched it for a while. Went on to a different design and then came back to the pill-shaped microphone more in the 50s. And you'll see lots of footage of, or lots of pictures of like Elvis singing into 77s in, this, in studios or the Beach Boys or something. Um, but you know, not live. These were studio microphones for sure. This one was both ribbons were shot mm. and it was missing the yoke, which was actually not the same size. It was shorter than the other ones. So we had to get a custom fork made. I'm like, dude, how much is this going to cost? He's like, calm down. I just opened it. It's serial number three, which dates this microphone to 1936.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah.
1: So... When Antique Road shows was here, I was going to take it over to them, mm-hmm. and I forgot. I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, eh, well, so much for getting the value.
0: But you know that's valuable. Yeah, yeah
1: well, to the right person. Sure. Yeah, uh, at, with that low serial number.
0: Yeah. Well, and thinking about items of value like that, when you were beginning to talk, it's so interesting how both in the museum realm and certainly in the objects you're talking about, how sometimes an object just has value attributed to it based on who owned it or who used it as is the case with the Ghostbusters microphone. Right. Or the Real a Real for Steely Dan. Right. But also, especially when it comes to technology um, and the fact that this technology in the grand scheme of human history hasn't been around that long and we've already seen such massive technological changes. I mean, the fact that we can be sitting here right now at the Ant Space recording this podcast. Right. Nice plug, by the way. Good job. (laughs) You'll get one before the podcast is through. (laughs) But the fact that we can be doing this right now was unfathomable a few decades back. And so, yeah, so so, and and I think that's such an interesting um, confluence that you have these antiques, for lack of a better word, in your space along with state-of-the-art technology to record the sounds of today.
1: That is the irony. Yeah, this old gear that people would throw away would, would go well, this has value. Seriously. Yeah. One other piece that there's a, a particular kind of organ called a Hammond organ, particular model, the B three that uh, was originally made in the sixties for churches that couldn't afford pipe organs. Mm. And it's a tube powered thing with these tone wheels inside. And it has a rotating speaker called a Leslie speaker cabinet that employs the Doppler shift. Every time you, s- you slow it up or s- slow it down or speed it up, it changes the wobble. Mm. And meant for churches but there was a power amp in it that was powered by tubes that if you turned it up would distort and all the rock artists in the early 60s went oh what's this <laughs> and this became the rock keyboard you know that's us give me some loving from spencer davis group that's the the band and all these amazing keyboard players were driving these organs to distortion you know with deep purple all that stuff okay that that's that's awesome huge right? There was never meant to be a touring instrument, especially with the keyboard and a separate speaker cabinet. So touring in the sixties and seventies with actual Hammond B3s and Leslie's was a pain in the butt. And here come this, uh, the eighties, uh, with synthesizers that replaced it in this, you know, the sound that was close. Mm. Did it sound exactly the same? No. Was it close? Yeah. Was it a lot lighter and easier <laughs> on your back? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So people were throwing B3s away because it was not convenient. (laughs) And now people are like, that was dumb. (laughs) (laughs) And we got our organ, let's just say, for well under $1,000 in the 80s from somebody who didn't need it anymore. And they sell for about $8,000 in organ now. Wow. In the condition of ours. It's insane how what is old is new again.
0: With that in mind, um, the... Museum has what we have dubbed a communications corner.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. And
0: uh, we have several antique microphones, radios, as well as some vintage musical devices like phonographs and vitrollas, um, some of which that you've actually inspected yourself.
1: Absolutely. I've given it the gone through.
0: (laughs) Now, with your expertise in sound technology throughout the years, what other equipment or devices do you think are museum worthy? And uh, what technology of today do you think might soon end up in a museum that's already oh, that's obsolete
1: a marvelous question <laughs> uh yeah so we were talking about those ribbon microphones yeah. the, the, the there is a remarkable RCA 44 at the museum right now that i've never seen with this kind of bronze patina on it yeah uh, yeah a special br- uh, branding on it like uh, that's that's a, an amazing piece i would love to plug that in and hear what it sounds like Oh, my gosh. We have one like it at an emirage, but um, I think that's a special model. And you can't do a trumpet a, b- a bigger favor than to put it on a 44 like that. Really? Yeah, that that was made for those kind of brass instruments. Uh, so, yeah, that microphone is kind of a jaw dropper. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> how did you get that? <laughs> and, and if you post it on eBay, you know, people would lose their freaking minds. Mm. Uh, And it's funny, eBay dictates the value of all these things now. Yeah. Because before eBay, there were equipment brokers throughout the world that dictated the price of these things Mm. and the value. So this microphone, the Sinatra microphone that's here down at Tangwood is a, a Neumann U47, is the make and model. And before, it was the brokers that set the value. Now, if there's a rich person in Texas who is a big um, Bob Dylan fan and sees all these pictures of Bob Dylan singing into a 47 with a very rich person in Tokyo who's a big Beatle fan and sees all these pictures of John Lennon singing into 47s. I've actually fe- held the 47 that the- was used to record Let It Be when I visited oh. Abbey Road. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> that's a lot of money in my hand right now. And the, uh, um, uh, they would just start fight each other out because they have endless of money. And then before they knew it, they doubled the price, of the value of these. Um, so if, if that's the model of how this is going to work, there will probably be some gear that came out in the eighties. Some of this rack gear that replaced the real organs mm. that had a sound that wasn't exactly right, but everyone got, fell in love with that one sound. So there might be some, there's, there's some synthesizers from that era that people go bonkers for the Juno uh, synthesizers and the uh, um, the, some of the profit synthesizers, these analog synthesizers that the new modeling uh, uh, digital synths don't sound the same of. So uh, there will probably be some DJ equipment that came out in the last 10 years that people think, Oh, it's, it's kind of big and clunky. There's now a new digital version that's more effective and they'll go, in t- 20 years going, you know, that big clunky thing had a vibe. Yeah. It sounded cool. It wasn't the most user-friendly interface, but man, that sound. And that's what, that's the kind of thing that will blow up in the future. Wow. is something that has a distinctive sound. Hence well, why vinyl came back and why, <clears throat> dare I say it, cassettes are coming back.
0: Well, like you said, everything old is new again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of new again, um, what kind of work is being done at Emirash today?
1: Ah, uh, uh, I'm in the middle of 12 albums there wow. and I have two second engineers are, are, uh, in the middle of a couple projects as well. There's a funk group called the exchange that just did, uh, a tracking thing for, uh, a, a, an independent label there that my second engineers did. Um, I just wrapped a feature film called desert shadows. They're doing, uh, mixing the film there. Um, so we do, we do like, Eighty percent music, ten percent film, and the rest is like restoration, maybe some radio work. It's, but it's, yeah, it's uh, mostly music. Uh, then uh, I have a handful of, of of local artists recording their their own projects. But we've done uh, since I've been there, uh, basically starting around January two thousand we have a collection of CDs in the lobby of all the albums that I've produced out of there. And we're around 250. Mm, wow. And now add another probably 30% to that of digital release only that didn't have any physical product. Mm. So I've, I've, uh, you know, so we're, we're probably well over 300 albums that I've produced for local or area clients since then.
0: That's amazing. And where would you like to see Emirage in the next 10 years? say,
1: Oh well, um, that's a good question. Uh, we're trying to make it so there's a little less pressure on me to keep the, the place going all the time' hence why I've been training some some second engineers to kind of and do more work because I've I've kind of had a, the place on lockdown for 20 years mm. and it's been on me to keep it going for 20 years in that regard. Uh, but at the same time I now have more responsibilities elsewhere. I'm you know I basically I'm, I'm now split in thirds. I'm two days a week at Mirage except in the summer. Two days a week at UNR as the recording arts instructor. And then in two days a week, I work for Whitesnake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm their, one of their um, staff engineer producers at their own facility in in, in, in South Reno. So um, I wanted to be the room to be able to keep going if I'm at UNR or working with Whitesnake. So, because um, there's big time commitments on all of these.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: Yeah, so having it where there's more engineers working out of, Mirage, because what's a huge trend now is people, and I teach this, I'm kind of training my own competition in a way. Yeah, Um, You don't need a room like Granny's house anymore to record an album. There was a day that was your only option because the big analog tape machines and the analog consoles cost a fortune. You couldn't put that in your home. Uh, You know, the the console we had at Granny's house was half a million dollars. The tape machine was $30,000. And... Now you can get everything in your laptop that, does, that did mostly what both of those did uh, for a $3,000 computer and $1,000 for the software. Yeah. Right? And the cor- but you just need the correct interface. It's the analog inputs and outputs are the Achilles heel of mm-hmm. that system. Uh, so one thing you can't replace is a space to record certain things in. So right now we're in a room that's mostly deadened. There's, there's acoustic treatments on the wall to prevent sounds from reflecting back and forth to create, to get rid of the ring. And, uh, that's good for certain things. It's terrible for others. Mm-hmm. So if you were to record a choir in a room, this dead, they would hate you. They would go punch <laughs> you in the face going, what are you doing to us? They're used to recording, uh, performing in cathedrals where there's many seconds of reverb that hold the notes out for them. Right. Right? So if you hear the uh, Vienna Boys Choir uh, in some, you know, Notre Dame, right, with 12 seconds of reverb, that's astonishing. Bring them in here, it sounds totally wrong. And conversely, you wouldn't take Metallica and put them in Notre Dame. Well, for several reasons. But acoustically, (laughs) that is a big one because as soon as they hit the bass drum twice, it's just going to become this din. Yes. So there's, there's an art to the room design for the kind of instruments you're going to put into them. So a place to record drums is very hard to design without really building out a space. You really can't have parallel walls in a room for recording drums well and even vocals well. So we have a great sounding space, especially to record drums and an amazing microphone collection. So having more engineers who are familiar with our room that can record stuff like the Hammond organ, the drums, all these things that they can't fit in their home studio, and then take the tracks home and do their post-production, that's kind of what we're kind of trying to move towards facilitating more. Having more engineers ha- understand and be, have accessibility to the space rather than me hogging it. <laughs>
0: And I mean, it sounds like your dance card is pretty full um, and that you aren't. (laughs) I've been
1: working 80 to 90 hour weeks for 31 (laughs) years.
0: And that you aren't uh, wanting for, for work. But if there was a listener that was interested in recording with Imaraj, how would they go about doing that?
1: Right. Um, So best way is to uh, actually reach me by email. If I'm available, cool. If not, I can, I can work with, uh, to land you with one of our two second engineers, Mike or Alex, um, in the near future. So the, my email address is Tom at inspired dash not an underscore, but a hyphen amateur.com. And that's my production company inspired amateur productions.
0: Excellent. Because
1: there's nothing more dangerous than the inspired amateur.
0: Ah, very nice. <laughs> now to end this podcast, I'm going to ask you what I call the big three questions. These are the questions no, that No, I don't ask. play basketball. Oh, okay. Well I, then- we're
1: down to two. We're down
0: to two. <laughs> <laughs> I ask, for those who
1: don't know, I'm 6'8". So I, uh, did, I'm sorry, did that sound rehearsed?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the first question is, uh, what sparks you about Sparks? What do you think makes it an intriguing place to live, work, or visit?
1: So- <laughs> it, it's a bit of a dichotomy. Uh, obviously when they built the studio, it was a little more cost effective to put a business there than, than Reno. I wasn't there for that decision, but I know that was the case. Um, it's really quiet for what we do, you know, and, and this is very common for recording studios in cities like LA or New York, where they're built in a building that's hidden because you really don't advertise, you have that kind of of gear hiding there. So we just vanished perfectly. And there were some other studios in the same neighborhood for a while for for the same reason. And, you know, an industrial area that was like, okay, no one bugs us. And it's awesome. Uh, You know, I I don't want to jinx anything, but, you know, we've we've been very fortunate with the security out there. And if there was ever uh, an issue with a false alarm, you know, Sparks PD was on it. That's amazing. Um, and uh, before I could answer the phone, they showed up. I'm like, "Are you charging us? <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> I should have picked that up sooner." Anyway, the, uh, <laughs> the um, and then it, it was it was nice when I had like get accommodations for clients coming to town. Five minutes from the airport. Hello. Yeah. Easy. That was a, that was an easy one, and getting them a room at the Nugget usually worked out really well, um, and. I liked being that close to the nugget for, for for a few reasons for shows and meals and stuff like that from, from the studio. Um, plus, oh, oh, the big history is a little known fact about the Harris Automobile Museum, the original location in Sparks, which is a stone throw from the studio. For you Rush fans out there, there's a song called uh, Red Barchetta. And when Rush would play here in the 70s, the drummer, Neil Peart, My hero, the guy I, the reason I do what I do, would love coming to see the Harris Automobile Collection out there, and um, and wrote a song about one of the cars, Red Barchetta, which was a Ferrari Barchetta that was there. And when he came back in '97 uh, on a motorcycle tour, he saw the new museum, which is very nice, but uh, one tenth the size of the original. Sure. And he's like, and the, and the Barchetta was gone. And I was reading his book where he explained all this. I'm like, the red Barchetta was in Reno? In Sparks? <laughs> a mile away from my studio this whole time? If I knew that growing up, I would have been camping. Oh, of course. <laughs> at that museum. So, you know, wow. great history there and huge nerd factor for re- Sparks' history there. Um, so every time I have a client come in town, I'm like, are you are you a Rush fan? They're like, yeah. Like, oh, I got to show you something. Yeah. No way. <laughs> in the book in the books in the lobby at the studio so they can i'm not making it up see it's right there (laughs) um uh now obviously there there are you know there's no place is perfect and the the the, the biggest downside has been the flooding Mm. we're right in the floodplain, and i'm i i was told by someone who took the tour with the museum recently they're finally doing something about clearing up the water downstream from us so Hopefully we won't be dealing with the floods again, but that mm-hmm. that we've had to you know sandbag Ooh. like three five times since I've
0: been there. God, And, and we, the amount of equipment and electricity yeah, in there, yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> uh,
1: and Doctor Davis was there for the flood in '97. Mm. Uh, but one thing, whoever the, the the developers were, my my my, my hats off to him because our building is like a foot higher than any other building on that street or in the neighborhood. Oh wow! So even in the hundred-year flood, where everyone was actually getting Water in the building. We it came to the front door at our at our building and didn't come in.
0: Oh, that's great!
1: So, yay! <laughs>
0: Knock on wood that that continues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, what is your favorite either personal memory of Sparks or if you have a favorite historical story, um, anything that you can think of? Or uh,
1: well, uh, hmm. uh, coming up, growing up here, obviously, Bertha and Tina was a big part of the family. Uh, outings and remember seeing Bertha and Tina open for a few acts at the showroom, and we went to the house to see them in in the the elephant house. Yep, and seeing the only elephant crosswalk in the world that was pretty amazing. <laughs> and I was actually at the Nevada Day parade where um, Bertha killed a dog. Oh, she she they they, they spooked her. So wow. she had to get therapy yeah. <laughs> too, uh, and what they ended up doing is having a dog in the elephant house with them. So they got used to oh, having them that's around. Good. But uh, yeah, Ooh. some innocent bystander um, lost a dog that day, wow. and because uh, it, it just hit Bertha the wrong way.
0: Well, dog versus elephant, elephant yeah, every time. <laughs> yeah, are
1: odd times. Um, and then there's always. Uh, I still have one of the little golden rooster pamphlets. Oh. Cause that story is just too insane not to keep. Yeah. And I took a lot of clients over there and see this chunk of gold shaped like a rooster. <laughs> We're the people dumb enough to do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 and lastly, um, kind of spoke about this in terms of what is museum worthy, but yeah. I was wondering if there was any item that you personally own or are aware about, um, that you think belongs in a museum or specifically the Sparks museum.
1: Uh, well,
0: well and you the, the, have the Golden us. Rooster yeah. <laughs> for one would really
1: make sense in the Sparks Museum. Oh, absolutely. Um, I know of various things in people's private collections that I actually can't divulge that would really need to belong in museums, but they're like, nope, that's mine. I'm like, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I understand. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um. Uh, man, that's a that's a tough one because. Yeah, there's a lot of things that people would consider mu- museum-worthy at our at our studio. That, um, yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um,
0: well, I think things that are museum-worthy there that probably should stay there. Yes. Yeah. given the building's history. Yeah. Well, that
1: and we're using them.
0: Of course. You yeah, know, we
1: we all these items that we've gotten, we've we've fixed up so they can be used. Uh, we have a 1919 Victrola there. That I got fixed up, and I demonstrate that to every person who walks around the, the in, comes and takes a tour. I we also have an Edison player that I have yet to get fixed up, but I will, because I teach this stuff and, that, and I explain the history of Victor talking machine versus you know Edison and the the the, the feud between the two of them. And yeah. this is a visual aid. Wow. And boy, there are other items, but I just.
0: <laughs> No, Either you I, I can't pro- talk about them, or I can't. Yeah. <laughs> provided a wealth of information today. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely.
1: Hopefully I didn't talk your ear off.
0: Oh, no. And this is all very interesting information. And thank you so much for sharing so much about Emirage And uh, oh, good oh, luck. Oh, oh, oh yes. wait,
1: wait. So Amaraj is about to turn 40.
0: <gasps> oh, my gosh. It's the
1: longest-running commercial recording studio in the state. It opened September 29th 1982. And we are having its 40th birthday, September 29th ninth uh, 2022 and we're the, so there'll be some event that we're, we're we're still developing right now uh that'll be a thursday night they'll be we're going to be informing the masses so wonderful a rare opportunity to come see the facility for those who aren't musicians who are like wow that sounds like a cool place too bad i can't you know i don't play an instrument well here's your chance to actually come see it without having to book studio time
0: that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, hopefully we see a lot more from Imaraj in the next decade. Yeah, indeed. Saying. Yeah. The Sparks Museum Podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is produced and recorded at the podcast recording studio at Sparks' own AntSpace Coworking Entrepreneurial Hub, a place for entrepreneurs made by entrepreneurs. We really want to get the word out about our brand new audio series, so please spread the word about our new podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and share this episode. Do you have a favorite story of Sparks that you want to hear on the podcast? Email info at sparksmuseum.org to share any recommendations. We would love to hear from you. We also invite you to visit the Sparks Heritage Museum on 814 Victorian Avenue. The museum is open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Please come visit and be a part of our ongoing efforts to tell the Sparks story. We'll see you next time.